Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. And today, we're talking about Powered by the Apocalypse, the 2D6-based uh, game engine used for a number of interesting indie games, and uh, yeah... It's one of the more competent indie game systems that, and it, there are, I think, almost a hundred or more games using this system because it is easy to write for and very, very, very flexible. But before we get into that, we should introduce ourselves. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm the other one. My name's Ed. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. Uh, my voice is kind of scratchy because we just wrapped up like a three-hour D&D game. And in doing so, wrapped up a 18-month D&D campaign. In a hilarious way. Yes, which is what we're going to talk about in our next segment, which is the weekend hobby. Yay! Ed, you ran the game. You can tell us what happened. Yeah, so in the course of investigating the everlasting rhyme in uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, the adventurers came across a red wizard who was burned at the stake, and they decided to go seek out his uh, nefarious laboratory and came across a Thanksgiving-themed dungeon uh, that included such wonders as a uh, cranberry sauce jelly floor uh, that would send things flying if they hit the floor with any amount of force. Um, the sentient haunted skins of argumentative dinner guests, a gravy elemental, and a turkey bear uh, that savagely mauled the party to death. It was it was terrifying. The gobble. The gobble. Yep. The barbarian solution was to hack away his fears into tiny pieces. Which almost worked. Almost worked. You guys got really close to killing it. <laughs> Until it got a... It, it rolled a crit on one of its attacks as it was going past you. Yeah, that, that was what did it. Yep. So... Uh, D&D campaign after over a year uh, is done. I didn't have any illusions that we would actually like complete the entire thing because Rhyme of the Frostmaiden is like seven acts and we didn't even make it out of the first act. Really? It's a Damn. huge campaign. Uh, but that's also good because uh, it works as a good kind of source book almost for Icewind Dale in general. And there's so many miscellaneous adventures and events and plot lines that you don't necessarily need to follow the actual rhyme of the Frost Maiden story. Because it's written kind of weird, and I've noticed people online say the same thing, is that the story is kind of incoherent. It's very Skyrim-y, and that there is an overarching story, but it's really just you following a bunch of... Uh, disparate plot points and the actual rhyme of a frost maiden story is kind of a just the background radiation mm. so you can take any one of those acts and make it its own campaign really 
Alright. Yeah. So there's still a lot of stuff in there that you could do. Like, there's several plot lines just in East Haven alone where you guys died that didn't get followed up on, but yeah, there's a lot of content in there, so if we ever wanted to return to the Ten Towns, there's more that could happen. I'm returning to the Ten Towns and I'm burning them all down. Um, that was a distinct possibility had you guys made it to the end of the act. Cool. I'll keep that in mind for my insane fire wizard. So yeah, that's... will be named after a certain insane fire wizard that a friend of ours likes to play. Uh, does this have anything to do with Dead Orc Pass? It does. <laughs> yep, I think I know that name now. Yeah. I don't I don't know how I feel about that character returning. Well, don't. Too bad. Too bad. Yes. Um so my weekend hobby That wasn't I... that wasn't my entire week. <laughs> oh, well, then do the rest of your week. Um I got my bootleg miniatures from Ukraine uh straight out of the war zone. Uh they came out of uh Kharkiv, I think was one of the big cities that was recently liberated from the Russians uh, is where these got shipped out from. Uh, they're pretty good quality for being pirate miniatures. The uh, Infinity stuff, if it didn't have the uh, little tag that shows like their quality inspection things that they put on it, uh, I would not have known the difference. Uh, and then 3D printer is back up and running. I'm currently printing out some sci-fi doodads to go with infinity and i've only had like two failures so far uh previously i was not necessarily aware that different printing resins have like different settings that they need to cure properly so i looked up the official like recommended uh settings for the type of resin that i'm using i seem to be having much better luck this time around so we'll see how that goes and that was my weekend hobby. Ta-da! So my weekend hobby uh, only had one D and D game that I was running this week. Uh, the other one took the week off because of um, I don't remember why scheduling. Just scheduling is always the answer. Uh, in this case, they finished up their battle against a sort of mid boss that they had been dealing with. Um, the Eldritch Knight Grand Trell, who's working for the Lady of Death, the, an ancient and powerful lich. Uh, as they burned him to death, he said, I'll see you again. Because uh, he's definitely coming back as an undead. Although they did manage to steal his fancy, um, like, bone longsword that did extra necrotic damage. And also his cloak of flying. Always they were very useful. happy when they realized that he had a cloak of flying. Um, then they went to the, the, like, magic college town, uh, to consult with one of the teachers there, but they got there and discovered that it was spring break! <laughs> yeah! And all the wizards were out, like, in the, all the student wizards were down at the town, like, partying and running around shirtless. Um. Wizard spring break sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, that, that, there were a lot of, like, cantrips going off everywhere. Oh, boy. Um, and drinking. Lots of drinking and cantrips. Uh, they sold the, like, bone longsword to a necromancy student 
um, because they determined that, in fact, none of the party members could actually make good use of it. <laughs> um, as the warlock wasn't proficient in longswords, the, and the cleric and the um, artificer, while they were, I think, technically proficient in longswords, maybe, um, were unable to attune to it as it's necromantic and had, had a specific attunement requirements. Heresy. Um, so they sold it to a, like, student necromancer wizard who I described as being basically the most goth kid that ever gothed. <laughs> um, and in doing so, they basically determined that, yeah, he's harmless. Um, they talked to one of the professors about him and he's like, oh yeah, no, that guy has no talent for magic, but his family is rich merchants. Um, so they... He, he pays for, like, the scholarships of five other u more useful students. Um, but they got some information from the professor about where they're headed next in order to go and track down the fey patron of the warlock to kill him. Because that, that's their new goal. Mm, sounds they don't like know a bad that, idea. Well, it's, uh, yeah. They're going to kill the fey patron they they acquired the weapons necessary to do so and now they're going to head into the eldritch grove and you know recite a poem that will summon him and they've been warned about there being a guardian of the eldritch grove a dragon that's been twisted by fairy magic it is a being that one might call fruminous or perhaps burbling is it Nurgle? Is it Grandfather Nurgle? No. No. It's a Jabberwock. Fun. I'm not... Um, I'm not... Uh, I'm not well-read enough to be familiar with the, the specific wordplay of the Jabberwocky poem. No. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, the Jabberwock... Um, da -da 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 -da. I think I read it for German class, of all things. What? It's a British poem. Yeah, I don't know. Lewis Carroll. I don't know how um, how those two things cross-pollinate, but I'm pretty sure that's where we read it. And as he stood in uffish thought, the Jabberwock with eyes of flame came waffling through the Tugley Wood and burbled as it came. Um, it's a weird monster. Uh, it's an official D&D monster, actually, because it was in the uh, Witchlight. Wild Beyond the Witchlight campaign. Mm. Um, I got the Witchlight so book, I, but I was uh, undecided on how much I actually wanted to read through. Well, there's a Jabberwock in there, so keep that in mind. Huzzah. And they will face that next week. When they delve into the woods and uh, find the grove with the Jabberwock. And the Vorpal Sword. Good times. That they probably... Well, Vorpal Sword comes from that poem as well, but uh, they, again, none of them are real sword peoples, so uh, they are yeah, now. They'll, find a Vorp they'll find a Vorpal Sword and be like, okay, this is uh, not that great. Although perhaps after the Warlock manages to kill his patron, whatever the new character that player brings in will be more interested in a Vorpal Sword. Because uh, there, there, there's some things. Him killing the patron is going to cause him to become the Archfey. Oh, boy. Because you can't 
kill a magical power, that, that power has to go somewhere. That sounds like, uh, ripe for player shenanigans. Yeah. I mean, the, the magical power of an archfey is going to go to the nearest fey creature, right? Uh, if the you player say so. is, I mean, it's, okay, I'm making up shit here, but as a dungeon master, this makes sense to me, that the magical power from the fairy creature can't be destroyed, it can only be transferred. Mm-hmm. And because the warlock already has a link to him, and because the warlock is an elf, uh, yeah, that's a link to the fae. He's going to become a fae entirely. Let the shenanigans commence. of the guy he killed. So yeah, that's been my weekend hobby. So time for the main topic. Powered by the apocalypse. I'm assuming it's nuclear powered. No, actually. Uh, the Apocalypse is left somewhat unspecified in the Powered by the Apo- in the Apocalypse World game, which was the first thing using Powered by the Apocalypse as the system. Uh, designed by Megway and Vincent Baker, and first published in 2010, uh, and originally designed for the Apocalypse World post-apocalyptic RPG, and later added for Dungeon World, which is a fantasy... RPG, very much a, like, lightened-up version of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, Powered by the Apocalypse is a indie game system based around 2d6 as the primary dice that you're going to roll. It's quite interesting. I think it's one of the stronger indie game systems out there, and it certainly has one of the largest collections of, like, sub-games generated for it. Um, the largest collection of games using the Powered by the Apocalypse engine, if you want to call it that. It has a few key elements that are, like, heavily used and heavily... And I don't know if they're the same between all of them, but that sort of define what a Powered by the Apocalypse game... The developers, the original developers, have an open letter on their website talking about how... Powered by the Apocalypse isn't even really a um, category it's or the name of a category of games or a set of specific features or a set of game design. It's anybody who chooses to make a game inspired by their game system. Just um, do it. And has asked for permission to use the Powered by the Apocalypse logo on it. That's it. That's all you need. You need to be inspired by their game and ask permission. Uh, I don't have any. I don't have any weird inspiration jokes there. Yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, as to what is and like, ask the game designers. If the game designer considers it to be powered by the apocalypse game, then it is. And if they don't, then it isn't. That that's pretty easily right. Uh, we need uh, bird apocalypse. Uh, emu war is lost even harder by the Australians, and it becomes a weird bird Mad Max wasteland. I mean, you could probably run that using powered by the apocalypse's main using apocalypse world. Mm-hmm. Um, now that being said, 
while the official definition of what is a Powered by the Apocalypse game is that it's inspired by... Uh, powered by... It's inspired by Apocalypse World, there are certain things that generally are the same across each system. Uh, and that is... The first one is playbooks. Rather than having a character and a class or doing a character list system where you just sort of pick stats or pick you know, traits and stuff, you use playbooks, which are classes with specific items for them that you pick, and usually they come pre-made with, like, a sheet of paper, You sometimes front and back, sometimes just front, that kind of defines your character and what their role is. Additionally, most Powered by the Apocalypse games only allow one of a particular playbook to be in a given party. Interesting. So that if one person is being the driver, you can't have a second driver. Um, same for, like, in the, the Sprawl, the Cyberpunk one, you can only have one hacker on your team. Um, and the next bit, kind of going off of that, is moves. Moves are the actions of the world, and moves range from fairly simple things. Uh, some games have moves that are just like, you know, attack or solve problem with violence <laughs> or talk to somebody or gather information, whatever, stuff like that. And so there are generally a pool of like basic actions and shared moves, and they're not specific to combat. They are specific to doing things. Essentially, a move is anytime you do something that is going to require you to roll dice. Mm-hmm. You do that as a move. You don't make a check. You do that as a move, and then you roll a die based on whatever the specific stats that that game uses. Gotta make a movement. Um, And each playbook generally gives you special moves that are just for your class. Um, The hacker might have a move that is like exploit firewall or something that allows you to do specific thing you you would roll a specific stat and then do certain things that no one else can do um and the next bit that's kind of the same across all of them although not 100 is shared world creation there is typically some element of world building that is done by the players as well as by the dungeon master or the game master, or the master of ceremonies. It the, again, the name can change depending on what game you're playing. Um, master of ceremonies is, I think, the most common and recommended one, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, generally speaking, the players are given the chance to shape the world a bit. Uh, when I ran a sprawl game, for instance, I asked the players, you know, to give me a defining element of the city we were going to be playing in. And then to name a organization that was in that city as well. One of the gangs or, like, corporations or whatever. Um, And they did have to create a corporation that did stuff in the city. Uh, That way, the players have sort of a chance to directly influence what sort of things they're going to be facing and what sort of topics they want the game to be about. It's a very nice mechanic, and it's one that I kind of try to exploit or to export to other game systems is get some world elements from the players before the game actually starts 
interesting. Um, the next one is the sort of simple resolution and degrees of success and failure. Uh, most rolls are done on 2d6, and then you add the relevant stat. Mm-hmm. Stats range from minus 2 to plus 2. So you're never going to really be stacking up a huge amount of, you know, bonuses to stuff. There are some, depending on the game, there might be additional bonuses or additional penalties, but typically it doesn't get very high. And the goal is generally to get, um, I want to say a 9 plus is a full success. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately. Uh, I, I, let me look at my, it's, it's been a while since I played one of these. Um, please excuse the dead air. Um, Oh, here we go. Uh, a 7 plus, between 7 and 9, is a, like, partial success, where you gain generally what you want, but also there's going to be something bad that happens. Uh, 6 or below, it goes poorly, um, and bad things happen. And on a 10 plus, it's effectively a, like, full success. Everything happens exactly the way you want. Um, and maybe even good things happen. The nice element of this is that even on a partial success, like, you get what you want, but something else is going to happen. And one of the elements the game really focuses on is that the players have a lot of agency. Um, a lot of times when they fail, they get to pick, like, what the failure conditions might be. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is... You know, they you roll to attack someone and you get a seven, which is a success. You do the damage, but something bad happens. You may drop an item. They might shoot you back. Uh, they might shoot someone else who's in the room. Um, they might you might alert more guards. You know, different things can happen that cause people to cause something to happen. And as the player, you get to sort of shape that a little more than you would in a lot of other games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the degrees of success and failure that are given through the system. Uh, it, it's a lot better than just you hit them or you don't. Um, the next thing that pretty much all of these games have in common is that there is some form of bonds or links between the players. I'm familiar with um, that concept. Yes, that one comes up in most of these games. Uh, I believe it's called Bonds and Thirsty Sword Lesbians. It's called Links in the Sprawl. It's called different things depending on the game. But the idea is that through gameplay and through working together, players get links and bonds and get the ability to help other people to various extents. Um and that as you level up, this increases and becomes something of a power and a resource that you can expend to, you know, 
tell a story about who your characters are and why they work together. Uh, the game is heavily narrative-driven as well. Uh, many of the things that you get are about doing stuff in a social way as much as they are in a combat scenario. Um, and I, we could talk about the different elements of the various games for a long time because there are so many different games that they have lots and lots of different elements. But rather than that, let's talk about six or so of the, I would call them the most prominent games. Um, certainly, some of them are the most prominent. There, It also includes the only one of them that I've actually run. Uh, although I'd be interested in running or playing in a lot of these different ones. Uh, the, so the first one is Apocalypse World. The original playbooks are the Angel medic the battle babe uh what? Which is kind of a trouble <laughs> battle babe interesting uh, name. Think, think of it like the troublemaker um i i guess the tank girl equivalent hmm. where it's somebody who is dangerous and combat ready and also is there to make trouble and be punk honestly i think um, troublemaker just on its own would have been a better name yeah, I don't know. They have some weird things. There's a whole stuff. The Brainer, which is someone who has psychic powers. Uh, the Chopper, who leads a biker gang. The Gunlugger, who has all the guns. Respectable. Um, their whole thing is just being very good at shooting guns in the apocalypse. Uh, the Driver, who is Mad Max. Just, just straight up, that's it's Mad Max. Uh, the Hard Holder, which is a landlord, warlord, um, ruler of a small settlement kind of person. Ooh, landlords. Yes. Uh, the Hocus, which is a cult leader. The Savvy Head, which is a tech or an engineer or a fixer kind of person. The Maestro D, which is a bartender, brothel owner, head of some social organizational. These all feel um, like fairly, so very properly orky names. They are, I mean, it is an apocalypse, so this is what the post-apocalyptic civilization is calling people. And the Skinner, who is the, I guess they're the equivalent of the party face. You know, they are a social character. They're all about social stuff. Uh, the various stats are cool, hard, hot, sharp, and weird. Uh, effectively, that's doing things under pressure, doing things that are dangerous and, like, brute force, um, doing stuff that is, like, socially, like, troublesome, uh, Sharp is for infiltration and, like, stealthy and stabby stuff. And then weird is for psychic powers and other related things. I'm going to put all of my points into weird. Um, So you'd probably want to be a brainer because that's the psychic and they use weird. My big brain! Um, The, the system is the, the exact nature of the apocalypse that causes Apocalypse World to happen isn't kind of left unspecified um and details of what the post-apocalyptic wasteland that they all live in 
is determined by the players. Uh, they get a chance to sort of work together to come up with what is going on in this post-apocalyptic wasteland and how the this group of weirdos all fit together. I'm still going um, with uh, Emu Apocalypse. Emu Apocalypse, yeah. Psychic emus have taken over the world and destroyed civilization. Yep. Sounds great. Let's do it. Um, and then the next one they made after Apocalypse World was Dungeon World, which, like I said, it was 2010, 2012-ish. And it's very much Dungeons and Dragons. The classes are the Barbarian, the Bard, the Cleric, the Druid, the Fighter, the Immolator, the Paladin, the Ranger, the Thief, and the Wizard. All of those are pretty standard, except for the Immolator, which is a, like, fire wizard they sort of take the same slot as the Warlock and the Sorcerer do in modern Dungeons & Dragons, where they are a wizard who are there, a magic user who is direct damage focused and highly destructive. Um, it uses the standard Dungeons & Dragons stats of strength, dexterity, constitution, charisma, intelligence, and wisdom. Although, again, because it's done in this session, the score on those is going to range from minus two to plus two. And, you know, each one of these classes has a collection of specific moves. For example, the Barbarian is going to be able to, like, smash through people, and the Immolator is going to be able to firebend. Um, so stuff like that. The Thief is going to be super sneaky. It provides a sort of narrative-heavy but also kind of loosely generated version of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, I'm not sure how the monsters are handled. I suspect that there's probably some really cool settings for how you can deal with large groups of monsters or like sneak past them, and some of their abilities seem like they're strong for just wipe out the monsters that you are currently facing and then move on with the story. Um the next one is one we've actually talked about before. It's Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Yeah, yeah. Um, nine playbooks. The Beast, The Chosen, The Devoted, The Infamous, The Nature Witch, The Scoundrel, The Seeker, The Spooky Witch, and The Trickster. And characters have five main stats. Daring, Grace, Heart, Wit, and Spirit. Uh, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, as the name implies, is sort of a queer-friendly game. It the focus is on as much the interpersonal relationships between the players as it is on the overarching narrative. Ed, I think you had some thoughts on this game? Yep. Uh, if you want more, go and uh, listen to our Pride Month uh, episode. I think I spent most of that one talking about this particular game. Yes, we went into it in detail there, so we'll sort of skip going into it in detail here. But if you do want to know more, our Pride Month episode talks about it. Um, Either way, you should, and it seems you like should very... still buy it and support the community. Do it. Do it now. Yes, that's a good idea. I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to, but these indie games tend to be a lot cheaper than, say, buying a single D&D source book. So, uh, yeah, worth looking into. Uh, the next one is The Sprawl which is a cyberpunk game I have played, I have run. I thought it was quite strong. Um, it has the playbooks of the driver, the fixer, the hacker, the hunter, the infiltrator, the killer, the pusher, the reporter, 
the soldier, and the tech. Uh, the stats of the game are edge, style, meat, mind, cool, and synth. Meat, that's a good stat. Uh, yeah, meat sort of determines all of your brute force activities. Whereas, you know, mind determines your intellectual activities, cool determines your ability to act under pressure, edge is about how good you are at, um, well, kind of everything. Edge is a, like, how good you are at your job, how competent you are. Style is how stylish you are, which matters in a cyberpunk setting. And synth is just about how good you are with having implants and stuff. Uh, the game is interesting. You don't earn money, you earn cred, which is a feature I quite like. Street cred. Cred rep. Well, cred represents both money, like credits, and street cred. Um, because your, like, underground cyberpunk collective of agents are trying to gain a resource that will let them get out of the city if they feel like getting out of the city. And that is sometimes money and sometimes just having a reputation for being able to do incredible violence to people if they don't go along with you. Or, you know, knowing who to call to find a hovercraft on short notice. <laughs> hovercraft, please. Um, it's, it's based heavily off of, like, late 80s, early 90s cyberpunk, so William Gibson novels in particular, but there are a whole bunch of other ones out there. Um... So it's very corporate-dominated, super gritty, um, maybe not as pink mohawk as some might expect, but, uh, you know, it is solid, and you can definitely have your pusher be a pink mohawked person running drugs to their local gang. Um, there's all sorts of options for doing stuff. And it draws from all the good cyberpunks. So, I mean, it has a reporter as a class if you really want to do Spider Jerusalem from Transmetropolitan. Nice. In fact, I'd say the reporter class is Spider Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, next up is Monster of the Week, which we talked briefly about during our horror TTRPG episode in, you know, just a few back. Uh, Monster of the Week is about class is you know it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Supernatural or the X Files, where you play a group of people who hunt weird monsters. Uh, the playbooks are the Chosen, the Expert, the Flake, the Initiate, the Monstrous, the Mundane, the Professional, the Divine, the Spooky, and the Wronged. And your statistics are Karm cool, sharp, tough, and weird. And, you know, you use your different playbooks and your stats to track down whatever your local monster is. I have a friend who did one where they, you know, were dealing with weird little monsters in Michigan. But you could also set it in whatever town you wanted or, you know, wherever you locally live and go for all the folklore things there. Or you could have it be like vampires or aliens or whatever. Good old Michigan um, folklore. It is somewhat designed towards supernatural creatures. Um, the fact that you have a divine and spooky as character classes sort of uh, leans it that way. 
But it's flexible. All of these games are quite flexible. Um, the next one is Blades in the Dark. Uh, this is an award-winning game of sort of... about being a Thieves Guild, essentially. Fun. Uh, players take on the role of various experts within a guild of... or a guild or criminal organization or syndicate or cult of some sort in a sort of dark, creepy, somewhat horror-y city with monsters and ghosts and stuff. Uh, the playbooks are The Cutter, which is combat-focused, The Hound, which is hunter or scouting, The Leech, who does equipment, The Lurk, who is stealthy, The Slide, who is social, The Spider, who is good at like leadership, plotting, and downtime abilities, and the Whisperer, who can talk to ghosts. I'll do that one. Um, this crew, it, it's about make... You also get to make a crew that you sort of belong to and run. Um, so that you have minions that can set up stuff for you as you pull try to pull off jobs in the dark city that it is set up as. Mm -hmm. um, this one, I think, has the most like specific setting... Um, as it takes place in the name of the city, um, the name of the city is something. Da -da 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 -da. Hey, Duskwall. Um, and they're, it, the setting is detailed quite well. It's, you know, has a bunch of canals and bridges, and it's sort of a little bit Venice-y, but the area outside of the city is known as the Deathlands. Um, and you get, like, radiant energy farms and eeleries, and... Yeah, it, it's about being a criminal organization and sort of a weird Victorian fantasy um, setting, I think. I, I think it meshes up kind of neatly with, like, the um, Dishonored games, hmm. if, any, if you've played those. That could be interesting. Yeah, where you play as a group of thieves stealing stuff and trying to pull off missions in this uh, crazy, crazy city. Uh, and the last, and that's the last of the big ones we we're going to talk about. Oh, I guess the skills from it. The skills in this one are done a little differently. It's skills rather than attributes. And they come from three categories. Uh, insight, prowess, and resolve. Which are effectively skills related to... Yeah, it's just a different style of doing abilities. Um, you get bonuses for that. Uh, one of the other elements that kind of ties all these games together is the way experience is handled. Um, experience is given out based on, usually based on like fulfilling mission objectives, but also on an individual level based on your character. If you play them in a specific way. Uh, for example, the cutter in blades in the dark gains experience when they address a challenge using violence. Um, 
So when they do violence instead of sneaking past a checkpoint, they get experience for doing so. Just reinforcing bad habits. Yeah, well, reinforcing character elements. Um, you know, it, and there are plenty of other ones like this where, you know, you get experience for using stealth. Or you get experience for, if you're the reporter in uh, The Sprawl, you can get experience for breaking a story. Um, so it makes gaining experience a more personal thing where... It's you get experience as your character grows and for doing things that grow your character rather than just because you killed a monster or finished a quest. Again, a format that I kind of like, although it does mean that characters can level up at different rates. Yeah, I it's guess as long as, eh, as long as everybody's good. getting equal opportunities to participate. Yeah, which is really something that is up to the Master of Ceremonies. Uh, now, we've gone through a few of the games, but there are a whole bunch of these, including one for Root, which is a board game normally, but it's sort of a Redwall-esque small animals in the forest building a civilization setting. Uh, Masks, which is about teenagers with superpowers um, who do superhero things but also have to deal with each other at school. Uh, Monster Hearts, which is similarly a high school full of teenage monsters. And I mean, like, vampires and werewolves, not, like, just psychopathic teenagers. Mm -hmm. uh, Spirit of 77, which is based on, like, 70s action movies and TV shows. Hmm. Um, so things like the $6 million man or the A-Team or that sort of weird hokey action movies uh atlas for the awful sea which is about sailing around to the various corners of the british empire and it all being terrible uh avatar legends which is the official avatar the last airbender rpg interesting uh city of mists which is about um Essentially, the players are people who are kind of reincarnations or have the powers of various deities or folklore creatures. Mm. Um, and Fellowship, which is a fantasy game that sort of draws from the archetypes of, like, Lord of the Rings, but with the notion that each player is the archetype of a particular race and as such gets the final say in things related to that race. Mm-hmm. So if one player is the elf, they would determine all facts about elves. <laughs> um, they'd be, oh yeah, all elves can breathe underwater. Okay, fine. Checks out. You know, it's stuff like that. I'm sure there's some more elements to it that balance that, but if you're an archetype, you get to determine all of the, you are the final say in el things about that particular race. Mm -hmm. um, which is a cool, cool concept, I think. And I'll say this much, Powered by the Apocalypse is a very flexible system. It has a lot of strong narrative elements and a lot of cool aspects that make it really good for creating a game set in, a game using the system. Which is why I think there are so many games that use the system. Mm -hmm. um, the playbooks are fairly straightforward. 
so you don't have to go out of your way to invent new elements for each for a character halfway through the game you create a playbook and let them like determine what they want to do with that character archetype and i think the focus on character archetypes makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. in that you pick what your archetype is and then everything ex- about how you want your character to look how you want them to generally act and feel is up to you mm-hmm. It's just the archetype that has any sort of mechanical effect. Any thoughts on Powered by the Apocalypse? Um, not particularly. I don't have a whole lot of experience with the system beyond uh, reading through all the stuff for Thirsty Sword Lesbians. It sounds um, definitely interesting as a mechanical change from D&D, or I guess what we would otherwise consider just your standard RPG fare, um, just based on how much of it is up to the players for a change. It has uh, that kind of yes and improv quality to it. It has a lot of that, yeah. Um, One of the elements that Master of Ceremonies or uh, Game Masters are supposed to do is that players generally have the first action mm-hmm. um you if essentially the game is designed so that players get have players always have the initiative players are always going to be the ones making an active choice and then the game plays out depending on what they do mm-hmm. um that is you know certainly a different way of playing than say dungeons and dragons where a lot of times the events kind of happen to the players mm-hmm. um so it takes some getting used to and a little bit of flexibility from the person running the game um yeah it doesn't use a lot of systems that uh dungeons and dragons and other similar games do uh for example i used a battle map in my sprawl game once and even then it was just a very vague broad map kind of showing where the building was and where the fence was Mm -hmm. that's like more than anything else that's like old Um, school rpg yes uh powered by the apocalypse games seem to be very heavily theater of the mind (laughs) Theater of the Positioning doesn't really matter. If you say, oh, I duck behind cover, then there's cover there. Like, unless the Dungeon Master was, like, started the round by saying, and you're approaching across a flat plane with no... A flat, featureless plane with nowhere to hide. Mm -hmm. Um, In which case, maybe you shouldn't be approaching that direction. Yeah, I'm curious as to how D&D would run if you take out a lot of like that, I guess, mechanical war gamey crunch and just do it on more theater of the mind. I if think the game so would many be of the... improved or if it would be not as good and be like, yeah, there's a reason that we don't do that anymore. I think at this point, so many of the Dungeons and Dragons rules have been built around the notion of knowing exact distances between things mm-hmm. that, that, would 
massively unbalance it. Um, for example, there's certain abilities that require you to be within 10 feet of each other. Hmm. Like spell ranges and ability ranges and auras and stuff really only work when you are dealing with a battle map or a grid and sort of understand where people are mm -hmm. at a given time. Yeah, because at least for me, I feel like the the theater of the mind just kind of wing it is better for keeping the game moving than, you know, bickering or lawyering over, like, distances and things like that. But that's just my opinion. I tend to be very loosey-goosey when it comes to rules. Yeah, it depends a lot on the game and what the game's mechanics are built around. Blades in the Dark is... Or, sorry, Blades in the Dark. Uh, Powered by the Apocalypse is built around narrative elements rather than gamist elements mm -hmm. for the most part. It's about telling that story through doing interesting things. So it doesn't focus on having specific positioning or specific, um, like, ranges for most things. You know, it would be like, oh, if you're close enough to shout at them, then sure, you can do the thing. I feel like that would be much more my play style, but it would also take a lot more uh, brain work as, as DM, which, having finished this D&D &D campaign, um, I don't know how intellectually I am up for uh, running RPG games. <laughs> I think I might be much more of a player. Yeah, it's it's not for everyone. And I think that's about it for Powered by the Apocalypse. I highly recommend that uh, you try one out. Even if all you've ever played is Dungeons & Dragons before, try out a Powered by the Apocalypse game. The books are relatively inexpensive. The game system itself is honestly simpler than D&D. <laughs> and, um, yeah, they're worth a shot. You can find the playbooks and a lot of the information for them in PDF format online. Um, there's something for everybody with them. Check it out. Come be, come be queer with us. That's, that's my, uh, yeah. yeah. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, where we talk about a board game or related type game that we have played before, Woo! usually. And today we're talking about, we didn't playtest this at all. <laughs> yeah, boy. We didn't playtest this at all is a card game that is not playtested at all. It's very, very random. It's similar to Flux in the sense that, like, it is just sort of stuff happening. Uh, it's for two to ten players and lasts between, well, one to ten minutes. Um, it, uh, like the name said, there was no playtesting involved in it, so it's very... It, it can veer off the rails immediately. Um... Cards have weird interactions. Some of them just let you win. Some of them just cause people to lose. Some of them are printed with a star on them because they're more powerful. You just shuffle those in. <laughs> like, the, the, there's no rule about what, what those do because they didn't playtest the game. Um, it's somewhat controversial in that it, it's just silly awesome and you just try to win. But there's no strategy or tactic, and it can just kind of be... You can just kind of lose. 
Um, so in yeah. in this case, would we be categorizing this under the cat, uh, the genre of game like experience? Because it seems like if you really don't have much in the way of rules and you didn't play test it, it's not much of a game. It's more of an activity. I mean, the game is everybody starts with two cards on your turn. You draw one card from the deck and then play one card from your hand following the instructions on the card. So it is somewhat organized in that, you know, you go around in a circle doing this and following the rules on the cards, but simultaneously, the rules on the cards do weird, random, pointless things. And, you know, eventually somebody wins. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite game. It is one that I have played quite a bit. It was a good lunchtime game. Uh, when, back when I was working in an office with many people and we all took lunch breaks at the same time. Um, yeah, I would say that you can buy it if you want, but think real hard about what sort of game experience you want before you pick it up. Yeah, I'm not really sure if that one's quite my style. Yeah. It's a good, like, group party game to play once or twice, but but playing it a lot just doesn't... It doesn't have as much of a strong replay value as you might like. Yeah, I think if I'm looking for weird, chaotic energy like that, I'm going to play Flux. Yeah, same. And that's our show. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at Country. You can follow us on Twitter for as long as that lasts <laughs> and until we decide to get rid of our Twitter account. We are at Null Country. You can join a union. You can um, punch a Nazi. You can protest against totalitarian governments. You can do the things that Ed's about to tell you to do. Um, don't be a dick. Uh, that's, that's the first rule in life. Um, you can follow me at Animadness on Instagram. Or uh, the same handle on Tumblr, since there's a seems to be an exodus of people heading to Tumblr as Twitter implodes. Um, it's pretty much the same as my Instagram. It's just that I haven't updated it in several years. Um, let's see what else. Uh, you can check out Tenacious Unicorn Ranch and their uh, mutual aid project to give them support. Um, also just helping them support the queer community in general. Uh, that would be much appreciated because, uh, yeah, certain political party are basically terrorists and they're continuing to attack our community on uh, trans day of remembrance, no less. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have much psychic energy to throw around today. So yeah, play games. Uh, don't be a jerk. Go Knowles. Go Knowles.